This episode is brought to you by Leave It In The Ring Radio. All boxing, no filter. Oh! That's another knockdown! He's not getting up, Jim! He's not getting up, Jim! He's not getting up! No, he's been knocked out! Without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, fight fans. It is Thursday, March 21st, and this is the Fistinados Podcast on the Leave It In The Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Rakowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. We are now also sponsored by... Ring Magazine and RingTV.com. Want to get them in there. Uh, and I actually did an article, before we get to the review section, did an article for Ring Magazine that should be coming out in the next episode, uh, in, the, in the next magazine that you'll get in the mail uh, on the incredibly important stretch run for DAZONE here and what this means, obviously highlighted by the Canelo Jacobs fights. I'm also recovering from a cold. Apologies on that. That is life with a two-year-old who goes to preschool and consistently gets me sick. Again, apologies for that. Uh, We're going to talk about the deep dive this week. Um, There's some pretty good stuff to review, and then the deep dive this week will be about Al Heyman and the management side of what PBC is, and uh, ultimately what Al Heyman is doing with Errol Spence and Deontay Wilder. I'll take a a very deep dive into both of those. I think they're related. I think it's interesting. And I hope you guys enjoy. All right, on to the review section. Okay, let's get through this first one quickly. Friday, March 8th from England on ESPN+. Plus. Daniel Dubois wins by KO2 over Razan Kojanu. Anthony Yard beats Travis Reeves by KO5, which might end up being interesting if this Kovalev fight happens. Uh, but let's not talk about that for now. And let's move on to Saturday, March 9th, where on Fox... We had Sean Porter beating Jordanis Ugas by split decision. Also on the card, Abel Ramos beats Francisco Santana by unanimous decision. And then Efe Ajagba beats Amir Mansour by KO2. The show averages 1.628 million viewers, peaking at 2.19 million viewers. The main event didn't do terrible. It actually averaged about 2.14 million viewers, but neither undercard performed particularly well, which is why the average number for the fight was so low. And let's be honest, you know, the the middle fight was okay. It wasn't great television. And obviously the main event was something I was really looking forward to, and that was not good TV to say the least. You know, F.A. Ajagba, I'd love to see him in against, you know, someone. Amir Mansour is you know, was probably a good heavyweight testing person. I, you know, I don't, it's, it, it's such an interesting story from him and it's tough to tell. Uh, but let's see F.A. Ajagba, you know, raise his level. There's interesting signs with him, but also warning signs. But anyways, 
back to the rating. I thought the show would do really well, but that was just definitely not the case. I think core fans recognized that this fight would be close and competitive, which it was. As I mentioned earlier, not particularly amazing television, and that's being charitable. When you look at the rating, this was the lowest rated network show of the night. And ABC won with the NBA, uh, and they did especially well with adults 18 to 34 and men 18 to 34. PBC was below average or outright abysmal in every category, basically. And this is starting, we're starting to see warning signs in terms of the demos that PBC is doing, especially on Fox. And there's a couple of theories for that. I don't know what, I think it's too, we don't have enough data to tell yet. But just even going back to this show, NBC blew it away with Dateline. It was close with CBS, which put on an episode of Ransom, and then a rerun of 48 Hours, which, you know, hint, hint, that is programming for old people. Uh, it did beat CBS in Men 18 to 49, so it beat it beat Ransom in Adults 25 to 54. Uh, but needless to say, like, this isn't great, and I mean, it's it's really, it's it's not even below average, like, it's it's bad. I mean, the negative spin... If you, want, if you want to go truly negative, if you want to just say, let's go anti-PBC negative spin, like, the raw numbers here are just, they're just really bad when, when you look at the competition it faces. And to be clear on this issue, like, averaging 1.6 million viewers for an entire show may seem like it's good when you're comparing it to maybe a, a, a show that does 750 or 800,000 on ESPN but that's not the case, and it's not really an issue of how many households Fox reaches versus ESPN. It's about what a sustainable viewership is. It's what Fox needs to do in order to sustain something versus what other, like what ESPN or FS1 or, or Showtime needs to sustain it. And like just for context, PBC Boxing, I think it would be the lowest rated show in primetime on Fox. I don't know that for a fact. But I'm guessing, and and look, there's a lot of unfair elements to that, and and I'll get to those, but I'm guessing it's either the lowest rated show or one of the lowest rated two or three shows in primetime right now for Fox. Like, the Showtime and ESPN shows, and for that matter, even the FS1 shows, are doing better than the average programming does on those networks. So even though Fox is doing more viewers, there's just a lot more to the story. You know, again, I don't think it's fair to just blanketly say that it's the lowest rated show on Fox right now and it's terrible. Its days are numbered. Like, so much context is missing from that. Like, first of all, a show on Saturday night is the leading candidate to be the lowest rated show on a network because Saturday night is the worst night of television. Also, Fox is basically switching around its entire programming strategy. But like everything with boxing, you know, PBC boxing is coming first. It doesn't have the benefit in this part of the year of having promotion, you know, other with other live events. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that the first two shows that were heavily promoted during football and the FS1 show, for that matter, which was heavily promoted during, like, major NFL playoff games, they all did significantly better than the last two shows on Fox and the last show on FS1. I think you'll see these ratings probably improve once WWE and baseball start to come. You know, I, I don't know when exactly WWE comes over, but when baseball comes into the season and it gives PBC like a much more regular promotion because it's not getting anything right now. And that's you're clearly seeing effects of that. 
And this is also very early into a long-term deal. So I'm not sitting here telling you the sky is falling yet. But there's bad signs right now. Like, not average. Like, you know, the Thurman show, like, that That was like, okay, like, there's something there. It's not great, but, you know, that's still, that's mixed bag territory. This is bad. I, and it, it's not me saying, like, I think both Fox and PBC would tell you this is bad, and they need to improve it. Um, I actually, like, to, to further, like, I, I just want to make it clear I don't have an agenda here. I actually was going to do an article on PBC ratings and wanted to be fair to them and wait till this show came out because I assumed it would improve their averages. And I don't think it's going to do that. So, I mean, there you have it. Um, but again, warning signs, like it's still very early in the process here. And, and I think we need to wait and get a lot more context from what other what other programming may bring to the table in terms of the overall strategy. But just, you know, look, would have loved to see a better number. So also on Saturday, March 9th from Verona, New York, on zone, Dimitri Beeble wins by unanimous decision over Joe Smith Jr. Also on the card, Mo Hooker wins by unanimous decision over Mikel LePierre. And then Callum Johnson wins by KO3 over Shawnee Monahan. No ratings for this because it was streamed on zone. Uh, and let's talk about it after I go through the March 15th results from DAZN. So on Friday, March 15th from Philly, also on DAZN, Tevin Farmer defeats Jodo Carroll by unanimous decision. Also on the card, Katie Taylor beats Rose Volante by KO9, and Maciej Suletsky beats Gabe Rosado by unanimous decision in a really fun TV fight. So <clears throat> I'm going to put all these DAZN fights into one grouping. These were like decent sort of lower level of the higher level TV fights. They're like decent, what used to be HBO boxing after dark shows, where you might have a name, you might have a decent scrap on each card, you might have a fight where you learn something about a talented fighter, and that's kind of where these all fall into. Like, look, we learned a bit more about Bevel against Joe Smith. Bevel got cracked, but overall dominated like a really decent, tough opponent. He didn't do it in super exciting fashion, but I could appreciate his performance. The Suleski Rosado fight and the Johnson Monahan fights were really fun TV. I mean, that's just, you know, those are the kind of fights you want to see on, like, you know, three years ago. That's what you were looking forward to on HBO Boxing After Dark. Those were undercards you looked forward to on Showtime. You know, even still on Showtime. Like, that's what those are. I thought the other fights were a little laborious. I mean, I did enjoy Katie Taylor. I do enjoy Tevin Farmer. But we're starting to get to the point where I need to see them in bigger fights. This is the type of matchmaking, though. Like, this is what every sort of all platforms are doing right now. It's a little disappointing. It's taken a little bit longer than I would have anticipated to get going in 2019. Uh, Everyone's building. There's high volume. There's some really good fights on that HBO Boxing After Dark level. But we're, you know, we've had to wait to build to the bigger fights. I mean, they're coming, but we've had to wait on them. All right. So <clears throat> on that note, actually, on to the bigger, the big pay-per-view fight. On Saturday, March 16th, Errol Spence defeats Mikey Garcia by shutout, unanimous decision, to retain his IBF welterweight title. This is going to be one of the topics I spend time on the deep dive on, as I mentioned up top. So let me get to the other results first. David Benavides beats Jay Leon Love by KO2 in a complete mismatch. I mean, pretty much all these were mismatches. Luis Neri be- 
beats Mikjo Arroyo by KO5. Chris Ariola beats Jean-Pierre Augustine by KO3. Um, not a whole lot to say about all those. Like, you could do a breakdown of something like David Benavidez. I mean, the way they set up his future fights well with this, and he looked great against Jaylian Love, you might want to say why he lost his title. Like, he lost it because of cocaine. You know, I think most you shouldn't hide from that. I wish they wouldn't. And I mean, look, Luis Neri looks great. I mean, I loved watching him fight. I and mean, Chris Ariel, who knows? Not a huge fan of the production. But here's what I'd say. There was a lot of chatter on Twitter about this. Fox is really good at doing NFL in particular and most sporting events in general. So I think they will end up figuring this out. And I think it is important because if you're going to do three or four of these a year, like it, it is a big deal because when you look at the pay-per-view numbers here, clearly there were either casuals or people who were responding to the great promotion that Fox did for this. And you want to give them an experience if you're doing three or four of these a year where they're happy to come back to it. So I think that part is important. I think they will figure it out, though. Um, the numbers are starting to come in. It looks like it's going to end up being, I think right now the count is somewhere between 300 and 325. It looks like it's going to come in somewhere between 350 and 400. This is a great number for two first-time pay-per-view fighters. As a pure number, like Fox and PBC have to be really happy with this. Like, they clearly made money. Fox promoted the heck out of it. I mean, that's, you know, the way a promotion like this works, it's just good for boxing on the whole. I mean, every part of Fox was talking about this. In the HBO or Showtime pay-per-view era, I'll, this would have been 150 to 250K pay-per-view sales. And they did that in a major way. You know, again, I'm going to set aside Errol Spence and what this means for him. So let's talk about Mikey Garcia for a minute here. The narrative coming into this was that this was a win-win for Mikey Garcia. Even if he lost the fight, you chalk it up to the size difference, and if he won the fight, he'd have been at the top of any pound-for-pound list. His career would have exploded. I disagree with that. I thought it was a risky fight for him to take. I am like sort of sad to be correct on this. Like Mikey took a beating, especially in rounds 9 and 11. Like That was starting to get tough to watch. Not only was that part a loss, but he lost the battle of skill, which is an extremely important narrative for his career. Errol Spence beat him, not just in terms of physicality, but beat him in terms of ring IQ and skill, which was supposed to be Mikey's way to win. And look, I'm glad the dude got paid. What's really next for him, though? He's clearly got to be at 135 or 140. Like, you just look at his body, especially after everything he did with the snack training, all that kind of stuff. Other people have covered this at length. You know, read the Steve Kim article on ESPN. That was pretty good. This dude didn't look ripped at 147. He looked pudgy, and he should be at 135 or 140. You look at him at 135, I mean, you have to favor Lomachenko against him for a few reasons, but most notably because Lomachenko is just probably better suited for the weight at this point than Mikey. And it's got to be tough to cut down two weight classes after you've bulked up. You know, 140, there's a few fights out there for him, but it'll be at a steep pay cut. I mean, he's going to need a few fights on regular TV before people jump back onto the Mikey Garcia pay-per-view experience. And I'm not sure there's another Mikey Garcia pay-per-view experience out there. 
maybe, maybe it's Lomachenko, but after this performance, it feels a lot more like an ESPN Plus fight. All right, so finally, in terms of the schedule, on Sunday, March 17th from New York on ESPN+, Plus, Michael Conlon beats Ruben Garcia-Hernandez by unanimous decision. Also on the card, Luis Colazzo beats Samuel Vargas by split decision. I don't have a whole lot to say about this card other than I really like the Colazzo-Vargas fight. Like, that was really good TV. Uh, Conlon is just going to have to be matched very carefully. I'm not the first to say that. You know, as he's building his career, look, in the last year, how much more growth have we seen from Shakur Stevenson than we have from Conlon? Like, that's starting to become... <clears throat> if Conlon was 22, I wouldn't be as worried about it. But he's like 26 or 27. So I think we... we you know, match him carefully. He's still got some growing to do. He still is young, but he's not that young. And and Shakur Stevenson looks like he has a much higher ceiling at this point. That doesn't mean you can, I mean, you can obviously still make that fight. You just might have to make it sooner than you think. All right, so two news and notes items that I want to talk about before we get to the deep dive. They are the DAZN price adjustment that got announced today, and then the UFC pay-per-view deal. And... <laughs> excuse me, they're probably their own separate deep dives, if I'm being honest. My quick comments on them, though, look, zone. I heard this news, I got some context on it, you know, for me, this is great, like, I'm paying $120 a year for zone right now, and after this news, I'm paying 100 I thought it was a pretty smart move on zone side, from a business sense, like, they're looking at it as, Hey, if you're just going to hop in month to month, you're still getting tremendous value for the big events and give us a chance to show you what we can do. What I will say is that I think you it's starting to look like the platform isn't as interested in putting the sport in front of a larger audience, which is okay. That's okay. Like I've been bullish on streaming services from that standpoint. And I think if DAZN wants to expand into sports like NFL or NBA at some point in the future, like this may not be the pricing model for those kind of things. I mean, like $99 a year is, you know, $20 a month is is not to be perfectly honest. Like in those options, it those options feel very fight sport centric. Like you can either come on at over double the price for a short term and binge or do, you know, watch a couple bigger events, or if you're a core fan, $99 a year. I'm keeping an eye on it as it develops, you know, but in terms of who's listening to this podcast, like in terms of hardcore boxing fans or MMA and boxing fans, or in terms of younger sports fans that are just like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to get cable and I'm just going to pay a hundred bucks for this and 50 bucks for ESPN plus, like you should be psyched. I mean, even if you look at, like, I'm one of those people who look at my boxing budget on a yearly basis, and I'm going to end up paying about $200 for Showtime this year to watch boxing, the circus, and billions. I pay $16.99 a month for Showtime, because just that's the way it's set up for me and where I live and everything. And although I really like circus and billions, like, I am happy to drop them or binge them if the boxing isn't worth it. You know, Showtime has built brand equity for me, so I'm not dropping it just because there's a few months where there's not a big fight on. But <clears throat> it's 
you know, when you look at the pricing options over the course of the year, and maybe, I mean, look, technically I am a millennial. I'm on the older side of it, but that's a very like younger millennial way of looking at things is not to look at it in terms of a year, just look at it as month to month. And that's fine. You can do that. But I, you know, I don't do it that way. And I think it's stupid to do it that way if you're a big time boxing fan. So a hundred bucks for the year, like I'm sign me up. That's great. Okay. The UFC pay-per-view stuff. So this is fascinating to me. It's probably its own deep dive at the appropriate moment because there's so many moving parts to this. But for those of you not aware, UFC pay-per-views are now exclusively available for purchase through ESPN. I mean, through basically through ESPN Plus, it sounds like. And it sounds like they're cheaper if you are an ESPN Plus subscriber than if you're not. And there's a lot of takeaways. Uh, but let's start with this is just a giant middle finger to the cable industry from ultimately Disney, although it's, <clears throat> I guess it's the UFC too. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff where I don't know the full moving parts to this yet. But this is what you're basically doing is taking 12 pay per view events a year, at least three or four of which were really good performers, and now they're no longer distributed through cable. And, I, you know, the ramifications for the pay-per-view industry are fascinating. I think the ramifications for Endeavor and the UFC are fascinating. That Endeavor is clearly setting up themselves with the UFC to have a lot more long-term options for what they do with the UFC. What this is really doing for them is it's stabilizing revenues, which means that in several years, if... As a TV property, the UFC is still performing really well for ESPN and ESPN+. They will have made themselves very attractive on a few different fronts. If they wanted to sell the company before the upcoming new contract negotiations, like that is now very much a reality. They can do that and probably get a great price for it, especially if their ratings are good and you can come in and project new TV deals. If they sell before that, that's a great way to sell the company if they want that. If they wanted to take part or all of their contract off of ESPN and ESPN Plus, they should be very attractive to other streaming services who would crave the audience as well as the pay-per-view pipeline that is now completely consolidated. I mean, they they also obviously got a better split in all of these for their pay-per-view shows. Like, that much is obvious. That's why they did the deal. Like, given how much of this stuff is coming down the pike... I don't know, given how much just general boxing news is coming down the pike, I don't know if I'll have time to do a whole deep dive on it, but I think, I don't know, you you guys let me know if you want me to do more on this, because I think there's a whole lot here, um, but this is like, you're going <clears throat> really massively down a rabbit hole in terms of pay-per-view, and I don't know how much, pe I mean, people seem to really care about that, but I just, I... Let me know if you guys want to hear more on that one. Um, okay, on to the deep dive. I'm actually going to cover two separate issues that are related, as I said, up top. First, I'm going to talk about Errol Spence's career and what this pay-per-view win means for him. And then I'm also going to talk about Deontay Wilder and the offer that he turned down, or offer, <coughs> excuse me, offers he turned down. I don't have much information on the ESPN offer, but clearly the DAZN, that one is totally out there. 
Um, these are both stories that this podcast has consistently followed. And it just adds a note, I'll probably talk a lot more about Spence because I just did a heavyweight episode uh, two episodes ago. And look, what these are really about is how the PBC and Al Heyman choose to guide the careers of fighters you know, that I think these two fighters have the most financial upside in the PBC stable. And that's, some of you might not agree with that, but that's okay. I mean, they're clearly two, two of the most, if not the two most. I also want to make it clear, I'm looking at this through the lens of the PBC as a management entity, as a, as an entity that guides careers rather than as a content provider. And I think that's just really important because that's what I want to focus on for this episode. So let's start with Spence because if you listen to the show from the beginning, you know how I feel about the guy. I've done a couple episodes on him where I've talked about him quite a bit. I think he's a generational talent. I mean, I think he's an amazing test case for how the PBC model of building a star works. You know, there's a few points that I've hit on before you know, but I'll hit on them again just to give some overall context here for Spence. First of all, I think he's the ultimate case of the dude who passes the eye test with flying colors but doesn't yet have the resume. And now he's, I think he's like 29 years old. Like, he should have a legit resume at this point. But you can make a strong case that even counting this fight, this win against Mikey Garcia, he has the worst overall resume of any title holder at welterweight. I think you can also make the case that he'd be a betting favorite against every fighter, not just at welterweight, but every fighter between 140 and 154 pounds, except maybe Crawford, and that would probably be like a pick 'em fight. Something I've said all along is that I think Crawford and Spence are in their own universe right now when it comes to welterweights, and I'm not sure that anyone else is even close to reaching that level. They're probably both several levels above all the other welterweights. And I think this works to both of their advantages in terms of making the fight that we all want to see. And I think it will be built up, and I think it will be a huge fight, and I think it will get made. You see, there's a case to be made here that when you go back to the resume part of what we're talking about with Spence, that he has not been managed well through his career. And I would disagree with that because I think he's on the precipice of being a huge financial success story. You know, I don't want to relitigate Spence's resume because I think, you know, one of the things I like about how the PBC model works as a management entity is that they don't really force matches. It's kind of like what you want to make of it as a fighter. If you just want to pull a Leo Santa Cruz or a Gary Russell Jr. and consistently not take big fights or be content to fight once every 12 or 18 months, like then great. PBC will carve out a little corner for you. If you want to be Mikey Garcia and dare to be great, they'll make that happen too. So how does this affect Errol Spence? Well, he's been an avoided fighter. I think that's clear. There is a reason he has the freaking IBF title Because quite frankly, it's the title that actually enforces its mandatory rules. So it's the title that quote-unquote avoided fighters are most likely to end up with because they can actually force a fight with whoever the belt holder is. There's a reason that Spence has guys on his resume like Chris Algeri and Lamont Peterson 
and not some of the bigger name welterweights because look, those guys fight anyone and the bigger names, they pick their spots. So I'm okay with making a resume exception for a guy like Spence. His development still has incorporated fighters with different styles where he's learned how to box. It's funny, like one of the main narratives that was going around before with the Spence Garcia fight was that Spence or was that Garcia was actually the more skilled fighter. You know, I said this above. I mean, I think Garcia may have the slightly higher ring IQ, which is different than pure skills. But Spence is as skilled as Garcia in many areas. I remember a few weeks ago, maybe even two months ago, one of my favorite Twitter follows, Lee Wiley, was on Twitter saying that Spence might have had the better jab than Garcia. And that was like a scalding hot take on Twitter. And I said I agreed and made the point that it might not even be close. I may have even said that on another show as well. I can't remember at this point. But I actually think that in the fight against Garcia, like Spence did the unthinkable in terms of his narrative as a fighter. He won the fight, didn't KO Garcia, but still came out looking more impressive than ever. This wasn't Errol Spence by murder, which would have been impressive, but you could have chalked that up to being, you know, to Spence being more physically dominant. This was Errol Spence by boxing skill and in-ring strategy. And physical advantages too, but but using those intelligently. This was Spence using that those advantages in an intelligent way where you could think he'll utilize those like either those same advantages or other advantages in similar tactical ways against many other fighters who are currently welterweights right now. Like this was Spence winning the way that Garcia was supposed to win had he won the fight. I think that narrative is important because to me it takes away the argument that and look many <clears throat> many PBC fans in particular have been putting this argument out there but I think it's this is another narrative in general like oh Crawford blew it by by not signing with PBC since all the welterweights are there. And to me like there's two welterweights and then there's everyone else. And the quote-unquote everyone else group, like, that group is several levels down, like I said above. I think Spence would beat any other welterweight in the PBC stable impressively. And honestly, I think Crawford would too. If we're being brutally honest, I would have a tough time, like, the next level down is Pack and Thurman and maybe Sean Porter. And I would have a tough time picking any of those guys to win more than three rounds against either Spencer Crawford. I mean, maybe not Crawford because sometimes he loses rounds early while he's downloading info, but you get my point. I'd still be happy to see those fights. I'm not saying I wouldn't be happy to see them. Like, this is me predicting stuff. It's not, this isn't the truth. You know, the truth happens in the ring. Like, I'm, I'm not a soothsayer. But this goes back to why Spence doesn't have that amazing resume yet. You could still ding him on this one, too. You know, Mikey Garcia was a lightweight, not a welterweight. I think long-term, though, Spence Crawford does huge business. And that's something that didn't even seem likely last year. People talk about political divides as to why we don't see Spence versus Crawford. And trust me, if they both keep winning like this, we are going to see Spence versus Crawford. And maybe on a timeline, 
that's not going to be that different than if they were both with top rank or both with the PBC. I mean, how many fights does Spence really need on the PBC side before everyone realized that this is the marquee fight in boxing? I think we all realize it now, and I think we're all happy to see Spence fight some other PBC fighters. But he's probably just going to blow through him, or they're going to avoid him. Even if they were all in the same stable and he's fought them all, like, what is it, another year and a half? Like, sure, now it might take a, maybe it takes longer than that. But do we really need... <clears throat> like, do we really need to see Spence beat Pack, Porter, and Thurman impressively before he fights Crawford? Like, maybe. We certainly need to see him fight one or two of them. I wouldn't mind it at all, but I think outside of Pacquiao, the business against Crawford, especially in a year or so after this gets built up a little bit more, it'll become too hard to pass up. I don't think that same business will be there for a Porter or for a Thurman. What we didn't see, well, here's what we didn't see until just last weekend. We didn't see the commitment that happened on Fox's side. I mean, if you heard my last episode, you heard, you know, basically I said that I think Fox and ESPN are going to bring more than people think in terms of commitment and that these two pay-per-views are actually going to do more than people think. And, and that, look, 350000 in pay-per-view sales for a show like this, like I said up top, it's incredible. It's a very impressive number. I think it would have... You know, I said 150 to 250. I think it would have struggled to break 200 in the HBO Showtime era for this. Like, given the circumstances, this is some of Heyman's best work. Like, he did pull a rabbit out of the hat for Spence, who didn't have the resume up until this point. I think he knows what really matters is Spence versus Crawford. And I'm not saying he's slow playing it like a Mayweather-Pacquiao type thing. But I think it's fine to slow play for a little bit. That's a marquee fight that should do big business. You should slow play it properly. And now you've got Fox and ESPN behind these guys. They're going to really build them up much better than Showtime and HBO would have. I think the next steps, both marketing and and in the ring for Spence, are crucial. But let's come back to that. If Spence and Crawford are going to fight, you want it to be well over a million pay-per-views sold. I think that's totally in play. I mean, I think you need at least another year of building it, even if they were in the same stable. And because they're in different stables, it's clearly going to be longer than that. Spence needs to fight on Big Fox. Like, you need to get him a big non-pay-per-view fight on Big Fox or Showtime, and you need to get a real marketing push behind it. Like, not just him being in a main event with a PR push. You need a paid media campaign behind him. Crawford can fight on regular ESPN, too. Like, I don't mind that. Remember, you know, he benefit, how much did he benefit from having his last fight on right after an Alabama football game? I mean, yes, he did benefit tremendously from it, but that's not the total narrative. Remember, the audience dipped down after the, the, the game and into the initial fight, which was the Shakur Stevenson fight, but then it went way back up for the main event. Like it, it peaked at like 2.7 million and it was down at like 1.9 million for the undercard. Crawford doesn't have the same caliber of opponents available to him that Spence does. But I mean, let's be honest, like if Spence can't get other PBC welterweights to fight him, I don't know how much that matters. So what does Spence do next? What are the next steps? He called out Pacquiao. <clears throat> which 
<coughs> excuse me, that was the absolute right thing to do. And Pacquiao didn't seem like he was thrilled to take it. But Heyman ponied up big dollars for Pacquiao and probably lost money on the Broder pay-per-view in order to get Pac into the stable. You don't bring a dude like Pacquiao into the stable to make Pacquiao a star. He's already a star. Someone else needs to make their name on Pacquiao. Especially with Spence pay-per-view numbers as high as they got here. I don't think it's crazy to overpay Pacquiao again with the longer game in mind. But if you're going to lose money on Pacquiao, lose it with Spence. I'm sure Pacquiao would want Thurman over Spence. But how much are you willing to overpay Pacquiao? He's clearly, if you offer him the money, he'll, he'll fight anybody. I mean, he's pretty much said that. And, and I don't think we're at the point in his career where he's that choosy anymore. If that doesn't work, then you need to look at making a Porter fight, obviously, or a Danny Garcia fight as like that Showtime or Fox centerpiece. Heck, even a Broner fight would work for me. I mean, again, like, remember, you're still several fights away from Crawford, so build that audience in the right way. They shouldn't all be pay-per-view fights, and you need to build the appetite in the general public. Broner is a great bad guy. I mean, Spence would probably destroy him, and a lot of people would probably love that. It means giving guys with big names a shot to earn good money against Spence. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, it takes a certain kind of person to not, you know, to step up and take a Spence fight at this point. And some of that's dollars, but now we're starting to see it, that the B-side can earn money with Spence. But this also means we can't have any more Ocampos. We've got to see activity here. Like, no more 2018s where it's a decent fight early in Peterson and then a mandatory in Ocampo in the middle of the year and then nothing. Like, we should see two more fights this year in 2019. I liken Spence to a fighter that I spent years marketing myself. Triple G, Gennady Golovkin. Both started their careers slowly for different reasons and had to take slightly different tacks to win over fans. Both fighters were looked at as physical marvels and wrecking balls when the reality is they were both really incredibly talented technical fighters. They're really technically sound. They're really tactically intelligent fighters inside the ring. Now, both are soft-spoken in a lot of ways, but have a shtick and they're confident and they let their actions in the ring do the talking. Both of them also had one clear opponent that meant so much more than everyone else that they'd find themselves up against. I mean, obviously, for Spence, that's Crawford. For Triple G, that was Canelo. Triple G was an American, and he had to wait, you know, until he was out of his physical prime to get the Canelo fight. But Spence is American, and he is in his physical prime. He's got a bit of a head start on Golovkin in terms of that. So even if it takes a few years, he and Crawford should still both get the, the fight in their physical primes. The key for Spence now is remaining active and in the public conscious. I think he can do it. You know, maybe I'm wrong on Spence. Maybe he's not a generational talent. But at the very least, he's an A in a division that has a lot of B pluses and a, and a lot of A minuses. It's much easier to be the manager of someone like Floyd, who's a generational talent and can beat just about anyone out there. Like, I don't think I'm wrong on this, though. I think Spence is a generational talent. A year ago, most people thought, even if it was built properly, Spence and Crawford would be lucky to do 500,000 pay-per-view buys. 
I mean, I think Aram might have even been quoted as saying something like that. But I think now most people would, I mean, it would do way more than that now. And I don't think I'm alone in saying that. I think just seeing this number from Fox makes it obvious. All right, so <clears throat> I'm going to stay on the topic of Heyman as a manager, but move on to talking about Deontay Wilder and the recent news that he's fighting Dominic Brazil on regular showtime in May and foregoing huge potential dollars in the process. And as a move for showtime, I love this move. I love this for a variety of reasons. I mean, it signals the end of a very fallow period for showtime boxing, and now it's coming back with a bang. I love the fact that they're willing to break their wage scale and update it big time so a fighter like Wilder can appear back on Showtime. I mean, this isn't a huge fight. Wilder said it himself. But we're still talking, like, big-time stuff in terms of TV ratings, etc. Like, it's not a huge pay-per-view fight, but it's a, it's, a, it's a big fight in terms of regular Showtime. This isn't a dumb strategy either. I mean, you know, especially towards the end, there were, like, there were smart people at HBO who thought that the best way to keep boxing relevant is to abandon lower-level pay-per-views and even just some of the lower-level boxing after darks. And just make sure that the bigger fights, like the, just the really big fights out there, maybe not the million pay-per-views, but the uh, you know really big other events were on regular HBO. There were less of them, and they were just marketed as huge events, like must-haves, you know, must. This is exactly why you're subscribing. The byproduct of this, I mean, you get less boxing overall, and... You know, the network would essentially be moving back to where boxing was in the 80s on HBO, where it wasn't televised regularly at all. But you just, you got the major events. And I'm not saying Showtime should move to that strategy, but I'm sure when we see the purses for this fight, we'll notice one of two things. Like, either Showtime has re completely redone the wage structure for its boxing, or Wilder is taking less money to be on Showtime than he was offered to do the disowner ESPN deal for this fight. And even both might be true to a certain extent. I mean, there's a clear reason. You know, clearly, Wilder didn't want to sign long-term anywhere. He said that publicly, and I think that's valid. But let's break it down a little bit further. Let's look at what Wilder and his team are betting on by turning down, especially this DAZN long-term deal. You know, I've heard through a source familiar with the DAZN offer that it was all guaranteed. Wilder could have lost all four fights and made $120 million. Assuming that's true, and you know, usually my interpretation of the zone offers is that they are not guaranteed 100%. And you can read many reports of deals to back this up where the fighters have different guarantees based on whether they win or lose for certain fights. But look, assuming that this is true, that this is all 100% guaranteed, I mean, look, Wilder and his team are perhaps valuing their independence too much, in my opinion. I think it's not as simple as, oh man, you're missing out on 120 million. Because the question is, can you make more than that for these fights? And remember, this means that there would be four fights in a row where he doesn't get Tyson Fury, which would clearly be a huge big money opportunity for him. So that opportunity cost is very real. And the crux of this deal is the 40 million per fight for Wilder fighting AJ for their two fights. And it's four fights, $120 million. But $80 million comes from the first Wilder fight and then against AJ and then the rematch. And I guess one was in the United States and then one was in the UK. 
So you have to ask yourself, what are the pathways to Wilder making more than $80 million on pay-per-view to fight AJ twice? And I'll use round numbers here, so the math is pretty easy to illustrate a larger point, just so we're in the right ballpark. And remember, if one of the fights was in the UK, there's <clears throat> there's not, <laughs> I mean, there's certainly not a history of pay-per-view fights happening. I mean, it would have to be at like, two in the morning or whatever in the UK for the fight to happen, three in the morning, something like that. Like they'd have to do that. So they still get the American pay-per-view audience. I'm going to assume that that's the case. But anyways, getting back to the numbers, if you charge a hundred dollars for a pay-per-view and you sell a million pay-per-views with the current splits that we have right now, you're basically getting somewhere between 43 and $50 million for the fight promotion. Now, obviously, reduce that appropriately if you charge $75 instead of $100, but let's just say for the ease of math, the price is $100. And let's just use, instead of $43, let's swing it up to $50 million. Let's not take out any expenses at all. That means that each, site of, each side of the fight promotion, each, let's just say each fighter, to keep it simple, gets $25 bucks if you're splitting it evenly, if Wilder and Fury have a 50-50 split. Now, you're not paying promoters a dime, nothing for marketing, nothing for the undercard, yada, 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 all the other expenses. Now, I do think PVC can do some really interesting things here. I mean, look, I just talked about what the UFC did with its pay-per-view, you know, it, it clearly got a more favorable pay-per-view split and signed exclusively in one area. You know, the PBC can negotiate more favorable splits that can help them out. And that does come at a cost of marketing. But even if you make as many marginal moves as you can, if you charge 75 bucks for the fight, you're still looking at having to hit more than 1.5 million pay-per-views-ish, probably more, to get that 40 million per fighter. And that is not counting for any expenses at all, which I want to emphasize, several million dollars for a fight like this. Realistically, you're saying that you can do significantly better than 3 million total pay-per-view buys over two fights between Wilder and AJ to beat that offer. Not just better, but like significantly better. Like you probably need to do 3.5 million when you're factoring in, is it worth it to 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 take the risk against that guarantee. Here's the problem I have with that. I mean, let me be clear before I get even get into my problem with it. Like, there are definitely pathways to beating that number in pay-per-view sales. Definitely. It's not foolish at all to go the, that, the pay-per-view route. We're clearly not there yet, though, and it may be a while before we get there, and we may never get there. The risks with going that route are huge when you look at the, the counter being that much guaranteed money available. You're counting on a lot of moving parts. And obviously you can look at the Floyd model for building a fight like this. And it seems like the best way to do it. I mean, heck, I just recommended essentially to do that model with Spence. But Floyd and Spence, and I guess Crawford for me too, like they're generational talents. Like, you can count on them to win their fights. Wilder has generational power, but is not a generational talent. And I don't think it's controversial to say that at all. 
it's much easier to go the Kirk Cousins route. And for foreign listeners, he's an NFL quarterback who essentially signed a series of one-year deals with his team to finally get to the point where he could hit the open market because there's ways that you can put a franchise tag player on a deal in the, you know, in the NFL. I'm not going to get into that. But essentially he took a, a series of one-year deals to finally hit the open market. And in doing so, he, <clears throat> he actually made a lot more money than quarterbacks who are much more talented and accomplished than he is because he took shorter deals and and less he he took more overall guarantees on shorter deals but took a, a series of shorter deals that got him to that point you know it's the boxing equivalent of going fight by fight which in the NFL again for foreign listeners like the injury risk is so real that many players at the highest level never even consider like they always take the long-term money and sign long-term deals rather than doing it's just it's considered because of injury it's considered so risky to do the series of one-year deals and it's in boxing it's i would say it's pretty similar to that like the risk with Wilder it's not just injuries either i mean Wilder, according to oddsmakers, is a four to one favorite right now against Dominic Brazil. Not fourteen to one. He's four to one. I mean, to me, you're playing with fire if you're turning down nine figures guaranteed and going into a fight where you're just a four to one favorite. Like that's a pretty close fight in terms of boxing. I expect Wilder to win. And yes, I mean Spence was about the same kind of favorite against Mikey Garcia. But, like, Mikey Garcia was a top 10 pound-for-pound pound guy. I mean, maybe towards the back end, but still top 10. Brazil is the back end of the top 10 at heavyweight, not pound-for-pound. Pound. Like, he's not out there being like, oh, that's a pound-for-pound pound threat there. No, he's like a top 10 heavyweight. And I think that speaks to Wilder's, you know, yes, it's bookmakers, but that speaks to how people look at Wilder's overall skill level. He's not a generational talent with his skill. He's a generational talent with his power, which means he's susceptible to lose. He's also not made generational money yet. It's much easier to slow play Floyd versus Manny, if you're managing Floyd, when Floyd has already made generational money. Like, by that time, he had several fights where he'd made more in each of his fights than Wilder has made in his career combined with all his purses. If Wilder loses to Brazil, yes, like he'll get some bigger fights, most notably a rematch with Brazil to get, I'm sure, his title back. But that WBC title is a huge part of the leverage he has because it's the only belt that AJ doesn't have. He may never get an AJ fight if he doesn't have that belt. So that belt is worth quite a bit of money to him. If he loses to Brazil, it's really hard to see him coming close to making the $120 million over four fights that he'd be making on the DAZN deal. And who knows what the ESPN offer was, but you can't imagine that's still on the table either. But let's say Wilder beats Brazil. And again, like to be clear, I expect him to. How much has he improved his negotiating power? He's still going back to the table with ESPN and DAZN negotiating a you know, a pay-per-view fight on ESPN or a fight on DAZN against AJ. 
I think he'd still get a really good deal, maybe slightly better than what he <clears throat> was going to get this time. But I'm not sure his negotiating power improves really that much because he beat Dominic Brazil. The other thing he risks is AJ and Fury fighting each other. I mean, that doesn't seem super likely. It seems much more likely that Wilder will, you know, now be the first to fight one of the two of them. But it could happen. I'll refer everyone back to the heavyweight episode I did about a month ago. Because now we're just starting to plug in actual real-life numbers into what that one covered. The major takeaway out of all this is that Wilder and his team value independence over almost everything else. Showtime understands that, and you even heard Espinosa say it in interviews. It sounds, he, <coughs> it sounds like there's this tacit understanding that they want Wilder to feel at home on Showtime, but if there are options for him to make crazy money on DAZN or ESPN, he should go take them. God, I mean, this heavyweight market is just so incredibly dynamic. That's why I can't sit here and say with 100% certainty that turning down the guaranteed money is completely absurd. It's not. There are certainly pathways to doing better than what DAZN was offering. I mean, not the least of which would be if Wilder beat Brazil and then AJ twice, like the first thing I would say about it is his next fight would be worth way more than the $20 million DAZN was guaranteeing him for that fourth fight on the deal. Because the way I understood it is it was $20 million to fight Brazil, and then forty for AJ1, forty for AJ2, and then $20 million after that. Well, if he, beat, if, he, if he won all three of those first fights, God, he, I mean, $20 million for for Wilder at that point would be a bargain. So there is that to consider. You know, if he did all those fights on paper, <clears throat> on pay-per-view, I mean, if, if that fourth fight was Fury instead, you know, after he beat AJ twice, like, that's a monster pay-per-view fight. I don't mind taking risks, but it's easier to take them when you've already made a ton of money. And you're taking, it's also easier when you're taking fights in the interim where you've mitigated that risk. And that's not what's happening here. You're counting on very aggressive pay-per-view estimates. Floyd and Manny both had very long runs of pay-per-views that sold high six figures or over a million buys before they actually fought each other. Connor did too before he fought Floyd. And breaking the 2 million pay-per-view buy barrier is tough, and it hasn't been done all that often. Wilder's been on pay-per-view once, and he's done 325,000 buys. It's aggressive to even estimate that if he fought Fury in the fall, that they'd top a million buys. Definitely possible, but definitely aggressive. The ESPN and Fox loudspeaker is very loud and will help out tremendously, but... That is aggressive. That is, there's just no other way to say it. My final note here is that even though Wilder turn, even though Wilder's turning down the DAZN deal, we actually we don't know what happened inside the Wilder camp. Heyman and Finkel could have laid out, they could have both laid out all the options with the pros and cons for all the different options, and actually recommended that Wilder take the DAZN deal. And, and maybe Wilder is the one who decided that wasn't in his best interests. If Wilder beats Brazil, he could still end up fighting on DAZN or, ES <coughs> or ESPN in the fall, like on a better deal. This could still work out very much in their favor. And this is only just like a one-fight sojourn from a scenario where Wilder could, you know, still earn a ton of money. 
but I would have told him to take the DAZN deal. I don't know the ESPN deal. If I knew more about that, I might have told him to take that. Even a joint Fox and ESPN pay-per-view with Wilder and Fury, and I'm not even sure that's possible, with both places just promoting the crap out of it. I mean, like, it's still not a guarantee you're going to beat that $40 million number. And the risk of losing to Brazil, I mean, that is a very real risk. Okay. On to the preview section. We've got a lot of not great fights coming up. Um, and it's March Madness. And, and that's why we have a lot of not great fights coming up. On Saturday, March 23rd, on ESPN, we have Kubrat Pula versus Bogdan Dinu at heavyweight. And then Jesse Magdaleno versus Rico Ramos at featherweight. Both 10 rounds, neither inspiring. Pulev is about a 15 to 1 favorite over Dinu. <coughs> Magdaleno is like a 7 or 8 to 1 favorite over Ramos. Uh, look, Top Rank is introducing what now looks like to be a pretty stacked, mostly foreign crop of heavyweights into the U.S. market because they are in the Tyson Fury business. That is fine. It's happening right in the middle of March Madness. There's clearly not high expectations for this fight. Moving on. There are ESPN Plus and DAZN fights from the UK during the day as well, but nothing that I really care about. What I do care about, on Sunday, March 24th on FS1, we have what I thought was the best fight of the initial PBC FS1 fight announcements where Lamont Peterson versus Sergey Lipinets is happening at welterweight. Anthony Peterson versus Argenis Mendez at junior welterweight also on the card. Odds are as follows for the fight. Lipinets is a tiny favorite, like less than minus 120 against Peterson, and Mendez is basically about the same. He's like minus 130. What does that really mean? That means these aren't coin flip fights. These are 50-50 fights. I also think that the Peterson-Lipinets fight is going to be great TV. This is a really strong test for PBC on FS1. They were smart to schedule this outside of that initial March Madness wave that, you know, the game's on Sunday night and a little bit earlier. So, you know, hopefully they'll get a TV audience for this. How many people are going to tune in? I don't know. It's a big question. It's going to tell us a lot uh, because there's not going to be, you know, to what I said earlier, there's not going to be a huge amount of promotion for this. But this might be the best combination of even matchmaking with TV-friendly matchmaking that we're ever going to see on FS1. It's, It's certainly like this is great. I want to emphasize that. It's a fight that could have headlined a Showtime card last year, which is like a really strong year. I hope it gets a good rating. On Saturday, March 30th, we have two other cards. One is on ESPN where Alexander Fazdik is fighting Dudu Ngambu, and then Edis Kavaluskis fights Ray Robinson, and I'm actually not clear if Kudratio Abdukak Karoff is fighting Kita Obra. I'm not clear if that's on TV or not. Fazdik is like a 50 to 1 favorite, maybe 75 to 1. So is the Mean Machine. Abdu Kakarov is like 30 to 1. This is Sweet 16 NCAA tournament weekend, and it is pretty clear that ESPN just wanted boxing as counter programming to that stuff and have low expectations. Um, I don't know. I mean, it might end up doing well in the ratings. Like, Vazdik, I think, you know, it's fine for him to build. I'm actually, like, he's a fighter with a lot of potential. Um, 
you know, I mean, he is the lineal champ at 175, which is a stacked weight class. And this is clearly, you know, he deserves a little bit of a break after beating Stevenson and, and winning the title. Um, and this is it for him. So this is the weekend to hide. This is your, you've got March Madness. And then your next fight, hopefully, for Kabaztik should be big. Um, look, this is, it's not dissimilar from to what we got from Fox with the PBC stuff for NBA All-Star Weekend. The bottom line is this, no promoter is going to turn down a date. So if you get a date from ESPN uh, for something like this, you're never going to turn it down. You're obviously not putting your best product on. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not going to, again, this isn't showtime where I expect every card to be really well curated. Like ESPN puts on much more product. Um, and I'm fine with fights like this as long as they're not the norm. Moving over to the zone on March 30th, Liam Smith fighting Sam Eggington in the UK where Smith is about a 10 to one favorite. I will likely watch this under that, what I consider to be a very nice DAZN option of watching a single fight after the fact, especially if I stay off social media and don't know the result. That, to me, is great. I'll probably watch it on that. Then DAZN has a card from Indio that night where Ryan Garcia is fighting Jose Lopez and Hela Acosta is fighting Ganyan Lopez. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Antonio Rosco also in a comeback fight. No, fights, no fight odds for any of these at the time of this recording, which tells you a lot I am semi-interested in seeing how Ryan Garcia looks, and that's about it. Uh, we have gone an hour. Not a whole lot more to uh, to say here. So there are a few good fights out there in the next two weeks. I hope you guys enjoyed the, the Spence drubbing that we saw. And then, look, April will, you know, come April... 12th, which I think is the Lomachenko fight, which should be a blowout, but still should be fun. We're about to hit another great run of of, of fights. Um, you know, we're going to have the Crawford Khan fight. We're going to have, you know, Danny Garcia on Fox. We're going to have the Srisaket Sorongvisa Estrada fight on the Zone World Boxing Series, uh, World Boxing Super Series semifinals on the same weekend. Canelo Jacobs. It's going to be a great run after that. Uh, but for right now, enjoy March Madness and enjoy a couple of these good fights. All right, guys. Bye. Did you get what you was looking for?